we can look back on history, I think everybody has done this, and try to identify key events that really shaped uh, the world that we live in. And everybody kind of comes up with their own list. Some might cite uh, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Gutenberg Press made reading um, literature throughout the world, uh, the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 9-11, perhaps the invasion of Ukraine. Some will say the world will never be the same again. Today we will look at an event that I want you to consider as the greatest event because of the ripple effects that have emanated out from this one singular event has had such an impact on all of life. It's impacted education, politics, medicine, science, wealth, family relationships, etc. And you may be, what, what is this event? It's the persecution of the church. Now, the reason it has had such a profound effect in all of the world is not because of the persecution, but it had an unintended uh, consequence. A result of the persecution, the Christians in Jerusalem scattered throughout the then known world. And they became witnesses as they scattered. Witnesses to Jesus Christ. And as witnesses, as they went out, they were proclaiming you were no longer, you no longer had to live in fear whether you were pleasing the gods, the many Roman gods, you know, Jupiter, Neptune, Pluto, Apollo, along with the goddesses and the demigods, always living kind of in this apprehension or fear. Have I done enough? Have I pleased them? It always kind of leaves you in a bondage. The witnesses proclaimed you could no longer, no longer could a few monopolize power by dangling the fear of displeasing the gods if you did not follow their voices, their influence, those who were propagating that belief. Everyone benefited, Christian or not. It was not, as these people proclaiming the gospel uh, scattered, all of society benefited from the message. I like in, uh, what it said in my eighth grade, when I taught eighth grade history in Santa Rosa. I, I've never forgot these words. When Christ promised that the truth shall make you free, he declared war on superstition, prejudice, and ignorance. The gospel is good news because it frees us from false religion and foolish traditions. It liberates our minds to pursue knowledge in all fields. The basic fields of human knowledge are called the liberal arts because they liberate our minds. Unfortunately, though, this message that we have all benefited from over the centuries 
came to us and to the world through persecution. Through persecution. Through hardship. The people scattered. Today we will look at this world-changing event, this persecution of the church that prompted the followers of Jesus Christ to scatter. And I want to do it just by answering three questions. Who scattered? What was the role of the apostles? And what was the message of the scattered? The folks who were scattered. So first, who scattered? Look at Acts. We're in Acts. Grab those Bibles. Acts chapter 8. That this event, this landmark event in the birth of the church. Acts 8. Who scattered? We read here, and Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. We looked at that last week, so you'll have to go back to uh, chapter 6 and 7. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, the God-fearing men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So who scattered? Everyone except the apostles. See, understand, at this, at this moment, everything with the... Um, the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, this Christian movement that some consider just a sect, a byproduct of Judaism, was all contained in Jerusalem and Jerusalem only. It hadn't gone out. Remember Acts 1.8, wait in Jerusalem until the power comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. So everything up to this point was in Jerusalem. Persecution comes, and now it's time for this movement to go global. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, folks, perhaps there's many reasons why the apostles stay, but the one that's glaring is that this Christian movement, this mission that God has ordained to give to humans will be accomplished as a result of everybody, not a select few. Everybody. That means you. That means me. Regardless of your role in life. They were all scattered, except for the apostles. And as they scattered, verse 4 tells us, they preached the word wherever they went. They preached the word. This movement, this preaching of the word comes about as a result of persecution. And sometimes that's exactly what it takes, doesn't it? A little bit of hardship, a little bit of discomfort. Not always but it prompts him to go as witnesses, we read. Verse 4, those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. 
And I think now in verse 5, we see a model. Here's Philip. We were introduced to Philip in chapter 6, where he was uh, commissioned, selected to help with the feeding of the widows that were being neglected. This same Philip, it tells us he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. He went to Samaria. It doesn't say he was sent to Samaria. We have agencies and organizations and structures. We have formalities, like when we send out missionaries or we ordain pastors, we may say we are sending them. Unfortunately, sometimes we have these forms and structures of ministry and they have unintended consequences of creating the illusion or the appearance or, or, or the feeling that only those who are sent, those who have been uh, authorized by a board or a, 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 a hierarchical structure that gives it to them, can they be a witness? See, Philip, you don't see any of that. It just says he had this burden, he had this sense that uh, God may want him to minister down in Samaria, and it just says he went. I'm lingering on this so that we may grow in understanding our freedom as witnesses. That you're all free to be a witness. And to be creative in how you go about it. That's why we want within life groups for them to be creative and have this as a, a growing part of what they are about is how might we go out and minister? You don't have to be an apostle to be a witness. You are called to be you, though. You don't have to be somebody else, an apostle or a pastor or an authorized missionary that is sent. You don't have to be them, but you have to be you. You're called to go out as yourself, as a person who is being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And as a result, you go as a witness. Now, many of us don't believe in ourselves when it comes to being a witness because we have a most mistaken notion what it means when it says, and they went out, the witnesses that scattered here in Acts 8, they preached the word. We have a mistaken notion what that means. When we think of preaching, we, we think of what I'm doing up here. And that would be scary. It's scary to me too. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a person standing in front preaching the word is a valuable tool to help us. It's valid. But it's only one form of preaching. It's an appropriate form. But it's not the only one. The ability to preach is in you. You are a preacher. You are a preacher. Let me give you an example, and maybe, okay, I understand. Even you young people, it's in you too. 
The easiest example I could give is of a parent. Have you ever tried to convey a message to your child or young person? And they stop you and they say, Dad, you're preaching at me. Oh my goodness. The ability to preach comes out whether you know it or not. In fact, often you don't know it. They may say, stop preaching at me. It can happen between Connie and I. <laughs> friends. Sometimes you friends in the hallway at the school. You may come off with your ability, show your great skills at preaching. We all have that capability when something gets aroused in us and it's of such an importance and we feel deeply about it. It's so hardwired into us. But parents, if you want your message to be heard by your child, the message you have is important and you want it to be heard, you need to learn to preach in ways that will help them to hear it. As parents and as Christians, when we believe something, we typically resort to one style, the monologue, to communicate. Preaching using the monologue at times is the most effective and is the most loving. However, we can also to resort to it because it's self-serving. Sometimes we resort to a, a preaching style that's a, a monologue because it's more of something I get from it than love and help to the person. It can create a sense of superiority. It can create a sense of control. It might help ease your insecurity. Preaching use means simply to proclaim, to communicate the good news, the gospel. It's being a herald. It's announcing good news. Try using a dialogue as a form of communication when you proclaim good news. Try developing a witnessing style as you're going about life that sounds more like a conversation. Just look at how Jesus Christ engaged people in conversation as a way to proclaim the gospel. Look how Jesus Christ often used questions as a way that he was proclaiming the gospel. The woman at the well about water. Uh, the bread, about the bread of life. Being born again. And what is all that all about? And how he engaged them. He was master in engaging people in conversation for the purpose of thinking about the gospel. In your preaching, don't fixate on what is wrong in the world. Preach, yeah, you know, as we rehearse it, life is hard. Life is hard. Commiserate. Have empathy. Life is hard. But, there's a new day coming. Yeah, it's hard here. The best is yet to come. 
There's a new world. There's a new heaven. There'll be new bodies that don't have birthdays and they get one year older. 47, Derek, I can't imagine. You're so old. Yeah. You're catching up with me, though, so be careful. Um, Philip, we see here in uh, verse 5, is that he proclaimed Christ and he ministered in verse uh, 7 in both words and deeds. Not only did he preach and proclaim with words, but he was doing these miraculous signs in verse 7 where shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So it's appropriate, you know, you, you don't have the gift of healing like this. I've never seen any of you demonstrate it. Uh, you don't have that. But we are all called to be a witness in both words and deeds. But I like the very end. Do you notice the end, to, uh, the results of this witnessing? See, this is why I say don't get fixated on all the bad stuff without pointing to the good stuff, that the rescuer, Jesus Christ, has come, that this is not all there is. There, there's a new beginning, and it tells us there in verse, at the very end of verse 7, so there was great joy in that city. A result of the scattered folks and their witnessing, there was joy in the city. We can ask, is there joy in our city? a result of our witnessing collectively as a church family? Is there joy in the city that you live in, a result of your presence there and you being a witness of Jesus Christ? There was great joy in the city. Don't you love that? Especially in this day and age, where are they going to get any kind of sense of joy? Well, second question, and I want to be as brief as possible here. So I save most the rest of the time to the end. So, but, but I think I, I certainly have to uh, make a statement here with the role of the apostles because of verse 14 and 17. Many have really uh, um, spent time in this section here and it has created some divisions in the church over uh, centuries, primarily between Pentecostals, Charismatics, and uh, non-Pentecostals. Um, it tells us there in verse 14, I'm at 8.14 now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not come to them yet. Had not come upon them, any of them yet. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, throughout history, there have been two views uh, with this passage. Some of you may be aware, and again, I just want to uh, cite these so you don't think I'm, I'm just trying to skim over it and not deal with the uh, little conflict here. Um, and that is, uh, those more of a charismatic Pentecostal, both views see these folks as Christians uh, based on Romans 8, 9. You know that if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has come and dwelt within you. So they would both see these folks as Christians. But those 
of the more of the charismatic Pentecostal persuasion will often view this as a second act, a second coming of the Holy Spirit. And they may ask you, have you had the second coming of the Holy Spirit? They, they may couch it in that way. Um, the others, though, view Acts differently and they interpret, they see Acts in its uniqueness, its style, its literary genre that, it, 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 that it's in, and it's more history describing. Um, You've got to differentiate when you read Scripture. Is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive and that is just describing the events that are there or is it prescriptive like the epistles that tells you uh, love your neighbor? So those of this persuasion believe it is descriptive. It's not meant to be a practice set in cement for all generations. You are to appreciate it for its unique role in it, how it uh, helped the church gain momentum. And in light of this, the role of the apostles, you know, the reason there was maybe this delayed coming of the Holy Spirit and the apostles coming is because in this new movement, it has all been centered in Jerusalem, tightly contained, and now they're hearing about it going throughout the world. And is this genuine? We know what happened here in Jerusalem on Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. What's going down there? They go down, and you could kind of say they gave them a Jerusalem experience of Pentecost as a way of validating. So there'd be no question that this is a legitimate movement of God that he has ordained through this uh, um, scattering. It was very significant too because it's Samaria. Of all places that, um, you know, this is like the birth and, and how um, at the birth you, you treat the child differently than as they get older. And, and so we see this in Scripture. And now it's going to Samaria. And what do we know about Samaritans? They were part Jew. There was intermarriage that had occurred and they have some Jewish blood, but they weren't full-blooded. They were in Samaria. 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 They were Samaritans, not highly regarded by the Jews. And this is the place that God has determined to launch. You can imagine the, the Jews who were converted to Christ, who were followers of Jesus Christ, uh, questioning when the apostles go down and lay hands and they receive the Spirit. You know, what, what he's saying, folks, there's no room for racial biases at all within the Christian movement. There's no room at all. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, just like you. Uh, dividing walls. Um, um, they could not argue with the authority of the apostles in this manner. So my answer to that question, what was the role of the apostles, would be to validate, to affirm this work that is going on down in Samaria. And then notice after, 
what the apostles do. In verse 25. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John, representatives of the apostles who went down, returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. You know, this is a new movement. You think they might be uneasy. You think, we we, we got to control this thing. It's getting out of hand. It's spiraling. It's multiplying. The growth is incredible. We got to manage. We got to control it. They went down. They validated. They affirmed what was happening. And then they went back to Jerusalem. They said, it's in good hands. The people are competent. It's legitimate. The last question, you know, what was the message? What was the message uh, scattered? Verse 5, they proclaimed to them Christ. Verse 12, preach good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, preach the gospel. Uh, they kept first things first. The message is a person, Jesus Christ. Simon the sorcerer, we have this uh, character, Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8-9, uh, teaches about the subtle difference, how we might get sidetracked from Jesus Christ and put our beliefs rather into a thing rather than a person. Let me explain uh, uh, just by looking at this account real quick, uh, 8 verse 9. It, it, you know, I, I find it quite humorous. Um, um, the way it's written here. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and, and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. You know, I, I just like that self-proclamation. Hey, I'm somebody great. And he gets that reputation. He probably goes around with a sign. I'm, I'm Simon the Great. I'm Simon, hey, I'm Simon the Great. They were astounded. So it was pretty easy to propagate that illusion that he was great. Um, verse 11, they followed him because he had amazed him for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. Now get a load of that. Simon the Great, who astounded people, he was amazed at what these apostles and, and Philip were doing. And he followed Philip. Simon, that is, followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, well, I already talked about um, uh, this section, 14 to 17, so let's skip over that. This was the apostles coming down, laying on hands, and the Spirit came upon them. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, wow, you got a good thing going, apostles. I mean, I have, I have a good thing going, but man, we could team up and, and really probably generate double the following and reputation. 
how about you give me this ability? I'll give you some money. You give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter responds, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You're following something else, Simon. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Simon was looking for a thing, not a person. It's a subtle thing. I find myself even sometimes gravitating that way. He first and foremost wanted the effect the person, the person could bring. Uh, the effect the person could bring became of paramount importance over the person of Jesus Christ. He was looking for the power to produce a sign that would astonish, astound the people so that he could keep his title of being someone great. It was being threatened. He was looking for a great sign, not for a great person. The only role a sign has is to point to something. Um, I have this picture. Uh, there, there it is. Wonderful. Uh, you know, when I was reading this, I thought of that journey over to uh, Central Oregon, skirting around Detroit Lake, and there's this sign that points to Mount Jefferson. Uh, folks, just look at that sign. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it beautiful? Look how the letters are just so straight. I mean, couldn't you just sit there staring at the sign in amazement all day and be thrilled? Go home and tell all your friends about this sign. <laughs> tell them they got to drive there to see the sign. Isn't it kind of funny that we can get so enamored with a sign and all it's intended to do is to point to something. Now, this is obvious. We see the absurdity in this, being more enamored with a sign than the mountain itself. But see, this is what's going on here as, as the people, and sometimes I can see it in my own heart, uh, wanting a certain sign. I, I want God to do something my way. Over and above, letting God be God, period. It's okay to want things, good health, uh, finances, a job. It's okay to want those things, but be aware when those things become more important. Because at that point, you're creating an idol and you're becoming enamored with things that are only intended to be signs. To point you to God. To help you to see God Himself. Simon is told to repent. And notice, I would say at best, Simon skirts around it. He's told to repent. Verse 24, we just read his response. 
Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. You know, folks, we're just not very good with confession and repentance. I don't think we can point our finger and say, Simon, uh, because when I hear people, uh, we, we used to, you know, forgive me, I'm sorry, and they say, repent. Uh, that, that's why I like the 12-step uh, where they say, name the exact nature of the wrong. The exact nature of the wrong. God, I repent. I create an idol of myself. I wanted the benefits of being a follower of you more than you, yourself. Let's bow in prayer. I kind of wrote a, a repentance prayer that I'll just, just close with, uh, you know, rather than what Simon said, you know, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you said may happen to me. Um, and, and this prayer, um, often I find myself praying as well that I'm going to offer here. You know, God, I repent of idolatry. I have made the desire to produce signs and to ask of things from you over and above you, yourself. I've made signs more important than you. I have put my affections on a thing over a person. God, help me identify why I thirst for the things of God over God Himself. May I begin to think of You in the beauty revealed in Scripture. May I benefit from all the signs as an arrow pointing to the beauty of God that it captures my greatest desire. Amen.